Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. Well, it's only April of 2023, but the 2024 presidential election is off and running. Joe Biden says he intends to run for re-election, but hasn't made it official yet. Donald Trump says he is running, even as he faces indictment in New York. And so are Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and maybe Governor Ron DeSantis. This hour, New York Times politics reporter Ested Herndon joins us to talk about the new season of his podcast, The Run-Up. It goes behind closed doors to see what party insiders are thinking and doing before the race is in full swing. That's coming up next after this news. Good morning and welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in today for Mina Kim. Well, here in California, it's an off year in politics. No regular elections planned, at least statewide. But across the country, the 2024 presidential election and the race to control Congress, well, those are well underway. This week's indictment of Donald Trump kept him in the headlines, while the mayoral election in Chicago and a big race for the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin give clues to what voters are thinking, at least this week. And of course, Republican and Democratic Party leaders are busy laying the groundwork for next year. And that is the focus of The Run-Up, the New York Times podcast analyzing national politics. The Run-Up is hosted by New York Times politics reporter Ested Herndon, who joins us now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I appreciate it. Good to have you. Well, let's talk about the podcast. Why in this, you know, this season of it, did you decide to focus on the insiders and who are they anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. We really wanted to be able to answer why now, why uh, focus on the presidential race now, particularly because it's a year and a half out from, you know, times most people would be voting. Last year on the run up, we really focused on the grassroots of both parties the voters and and the kind of themes that were happening among people that maybe the establishment was missing. And so we figured that after the race, it was a good time to check in with those establishment leaders to see whether they took the same lessons from the midterms and then how they were applying that to the next election. And so we started off at the RNC, we went to the DNC, and we also talked to kind of prominent activists and donors in the party to really try to get a sense of how they were trying to shape the, the direction of the candidates and the parties at this time when most people are, are really living their day-to-day lives and most voters aren't necessarily that clued into the race. We thought that this could be a great time to really check in on that because so much of that decision-making happens, to your point, behind closed doors. And who are these people? Are they, <laughs> I don't want to say normal voters, but I, I mean, are they big donors? Are they high rollers? Are they just sort of gadflies or kind of a yeah. combination of all of the above and a few other folks? 
Yeah, I think it's a combination. So this week on our podcast, we focused on the RNC chair race. And so we were out in Dana Point, California, as the Republican Party was picking a new national chair. And although we tried to really go underneath those surface level divisions, so the people supporting uh, uh, Ronna McDaniel, the people supporting Harmeet Dillon, her challenger also from California, uh, uh, but then also some of the RNC members who are trying to stay more neutral. So we talked to a, a leading Republican from Tennessee, uh, someone who's been a RNC kind of royalty, uh, uh, someone who shaped the party's direction from Mississippi, a man named Henry Barber. These are people's names who might not be as recognizable as maybe some of the candidates that you know from the midterms or, or, or kind of leaders and aides of Donald Trump. But these are the mainstays within the party that, that kind of navigate all of those different types of changes. So for us, we're really trying to introduce people to some of the important po uh, political figures that are taking place behind the scenes. And they're really the first ones that have to come together for the parties to be united. When we talk to Democrats and Republicans, they really say that it's the parties that set the tone for the candidates when it comes to 2024. And so it's McDaniel, it's Harmeet Dillon, it's people like Oscar Brock, a, a member, RNC member we talked to from Tennessee who was really explicit that he does not believe the party can move on until it gets rid of Donald Trump, who called out the chair as being completely beholden to Donald Trump. These are the conversations you can have when you're talking to people in this window, because I find that's the time where they're willing to be a little more honest than right before an election when they're really scared about how things might fall with voters. Well, and of course, the party is divided uh, to a certain extent between Trump and time to move on. And one of the people you spoke to uh, at the RNC, a guy named John Fredericks, is a big supporter of Donald Trump and his America First policies. Let's listen to a little bit of what he told you. We're trying to take over the Republican Party because what it represents right now is the Mitt Romney elites, right? We go to the infield of NASCAR and grill hot dogs, and Mitt Romney goes to the box of the owner of the Jets, right? That's the disconnect. And they're still in that world, they don't get it, and eventually we're gonna take over the Republican Party as a vehicle, right? As a vehicle for our movement. Well, and uh, instead, Herndon, I, I guess John Fredericks would have been supporting the insurgent in that race for chair, yeah. Harmeet Dillon, who is from San Francisco, sort of yeah. inexplicably, <laughs> but she is. She's well known to us here at KQED. Um, and she lost, uh, you know, a fairly comfortable victory for Ronna McDaniel. What does that tell you about where the RNC is at this mm -hmm. particular time? Yeah, it was really interesting because you did have real energy behind Dylan's campaign. Uh, to your point, not only were people like John Fredericks, these kind of conservative right wing media figures supporting her, uh, she really had a lot of support coming from uh, a Fox News host. We're calling for McDaniel to be ousted. Even someone like Ron DeSantis made a made a, a point that week to say that he supported Dylan's campaign. But at the same time, as you said. McDaniel ended up winning with a fairly comfortable margin, which I think really shows the big disconnect in the party, that there's a big difference between how the kind of insiders of Republican Party think uh, about who, how they should go going forward, and those people supported McDaniel, and then the kind of grassroots of the Republican Party, which is really pushing from the, from the outside, people like John Frederick. So when we talked to them after the vote, he was really saying this was demoralizing. This was something of the insiders giving what he called the, the New Jersey salute to the grassroots. And for the Republican side, 
That's been building for a long time. It's what helped Donald Trump even become the nominee, much less have energy to become the president. It's because the base of the party has really felt increasingly disconnected from the Mitt Romneys, from the George Bush era. And they take real pride in having shifted the party from the kind of uh, 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 lower taxes, maybe uh, business interests to what they consider to be a more working class party. But that has come along with the rest of Donald Trump's problems he's created for Republicans. But even now, there's a real sense that no matter what happens going forward, they cannot go back to the Mitt Romney version of the Republican Party. Because for people like John Fredericks, that's been their biggest victory over the last 10, 10 15 years. And they're not willing to see that. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you look at the track record of the RNC or the Republican Party under uh, the McDaniel uh, era, you know, you go to, you know, she was handpicked by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by the way, I think she's what, the niece of Mitt Romney? Her name is Rana, yes, yes. Romney McDaniel. And you never hear the Romney part because he's sort of out of favor with the base. But if you look at her tenure, 2018, Dems took over uh, the House Speaker. Nancy Pelosi is returned to power, 2020. Uh, Joe Biden. Biden defeats, uh, you know, the president, uh, Donald Trump, and then the midterms last year, a big disappointment for Republicans. So, like, what is the case for continuing with her leadership? Yeah. And I mean, the story gets even bleaker from there. I mean, people mentioned the two Georgia Senate races as other opportunities Republicans didn't take advantage of. There's been special elections that Democrats have overperformed in over the last four or five years. And so that's why you had a real cross-section of people uh, really supporting the uh, challenger. What ends up serving McDaniel well was one, just the power of incumbency. She's able to promise and and kind of do kind of insider trading with the other members of the RNC about so to win over votes. But it was also just the sense that like they needed a steady ship and that um, changing chair at this time would be something that would be something that was seen as maybe too uncertain for for already the uncertainty of a presidential race to come. She pitched herself as a real stabilizing force. And that's what that's what got RNC members to support her. But at the same time, she's also tried to say that she would create independence from Donald Trump. And that's what's going to be the really important thing to look for going forward. Part of her ability to be reelected as RNC chair was a very explicit promise that she would be a, a, a neutral figure in the upcoming primary and that she would not stack the deck in favor of Trump. Now, many RNC members just believe that is going to be impossible because he selected her and he maintains real power uh, uh, in her ecosystem. But she said to those RNC members that that's who that she was going to be that neutral figure for the primary. And I think when you see uh, when you look at those other challengers who are going to try to beat Trump, they're going to look to her to hold through on that promise. You know, we are uh, we went through the indictment. Finally, we got uh, from the D.A. this week uh, and uh, Donald Trump was in uh, the courtroom in New York. Lots of headlines uh, and an overshadowing, you know, not just the Republicans who are also running for president, but even President Biden, who is, yeah. you know, really tried to stay out of it. I guess you don't want to kind of get in the middle of a you know, uh, you don't want to distract from the negative attention, I guess, that uh, or become the focus of attention by saying something controversial. So Biden has really laid low. How do the other candidates in the race, and so far it's Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, probably Ron DeSantis and others are circling, like how do they feel about all this? They're, they're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place, aren't they? Because they can't, they can't say out loud, oh, it's time to move on from Donald Trump. Right. 
they're in a pickle of their own creation because they have not uh, uh, kind of gone at Trump for years. They've let similar conduct pass for years. They have uh, uh, mimicked his language about the DOJ and FBI and federal law enforcement uh, um, targeting conservative Republicans. It's actually created a groundwork for a lot of Republican voters to not uh, leave Trump, even as these indictments come down. And when you talk to Republicans over the last five, six months, there's been this kind of understanding or belief that the indictments would do the political work for them. That whenever these things came down, whether you're Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or, or someone eyeing the race, like a Tim Scott or a Glenn Youngkin, that when these indictments happen, it would naturally peel off some of the support for Donald Trump and therefore create more space for those other candidates. But I, what that view did not take into account is the unique relationship between Trump and the base and the fact that Republicans have been creating a kind of insulation for him for years and years. And so not only when these indictments came down, did you not see his support fall away among Republican electorate? You've seen it grown. And that's been a real miscalculation from those other candidates that, uh, you know, I was talking to people about over the last couple of weeks. What someone told me, though, is you should not make a judgment based on indictment number one, that they think that there is still going to be a, a, a willingness for those other candidates maybe to ramp up their language against Donald Trump when other things come down. Maybe that's what happens in Georgia. Maybe that's what happens with the special prosecutor and the documents and obstruction. But I'm still skeptical of those things being effective because, you know, to this point, you know, Fox News is all and kind of Republican. Uh, um, the loudest voices in the party are right now yeah. saying that Donald Trump is a victim. And, and it's hard to imagine um, that that's going to yeah. change We're even gonna, if another said, indictment comes down. Sorry to, sorry to step on you there. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to continue our conversation with Estead Herndon. He is the host of the podcast, The Run-Up. Give us a call, if you would, at 866-733-6786. Let us know what's on your mind. 866-733-6786. We're talking 2024 politics. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We're talking with Ested Herndon. He is politics reporter with The New York Times. He's the host of the podcast The Run-Up, which premiered its second season this week. The season focuses on the leadership of the Democratic and Republican parties and the roles they're going to play in the 2024 presidential election. So how do you feel about your political party, if you have one? We have a lot of no-party preference voters in California, but we'd love to hear from you. 
What are your thoughts about the party? Is the leadership even relevant to how you vote? And uh, what would you like to see the leadership of your party focus on? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you like, you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. Well, the Democrats have their own set of issues. And, uh, of course, you also went to the DNC. Uh, and tell us, if you would, um, Ested, like, what, what are the issues? I mean, they have a candidate, presumably President Joe Biden, who is on the older side, um, and a vice president, Kamala Harris, who some feel is a little shaky. Uh, what, are the inside, what are you hearing from the insiders at the DNC about uh, the current state of their presumable ticket in 2024? Yeah, I mean, this is the, the 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 equal and opposite reaction to the surprise of the midterms. When those results came in, it changed the feeling among Democrats about Joe Biden in 2024 almost immediately. What had been months of kind of fear about his leadership, uh, a nervousness about the midterms, and kind of questioning about whether they should look at other options for 2024 has completely evaporated. We were at the DNC's winter meeting in Philadelphia you heard universal support for Biden to run for re-election. And we really went there to kind of check in on how deep was that unity. Because I was, you know, it was a little bit of a whiplash for me. I was used to hearing Democrats feel kind of nervous about that uh, just months before. Uh, that has really, really gone away. And to your point, it's because the results were so uh, uh, definitive in the message that for swing voters, for independents, they really found that slate of Republican Party to be extreme. And so no matter how they felt about Biden, no matter how folks felt about uh, 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 the Democratic ticket or or kind of Democrats in Washington, they were willing to choose them against the, the option of Republicans because of the ways Republican Party has changed. Now, for Democrats, that is a kind of get out of jail free card. And we heard that come up in Philadelphia over and over. They pretty much believe that since the Republican Party is still so tied to Trumpism, that gives them a really good advantage for 2024. I would say this is the most confident I have heard Democratic leaders in a long time really feel that they entered 2024 on a great footing. And that's somewhat because of Joe Biden and his legislative victories, but that's more so because they're looking at another side that they think has much bigger problems that they don't see them solving. Well, one of the things we're seeing Joe Biden do is kind of move to the middle on some things. Yeah. I mean, his yeah. his first two years have been very progressive. I mean, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are pretty happy in general. But you've seen him move to the middle on border security, on immigrants, migrants, people seeking asylum. We saw him uh, also move to the middle on crime with that bill aimed at yep. D.C. Uh, so what are insiders saying about that shift? Is that what you meant by the sort of the get out of jail free card? Exactly. Is that they're thinking that, uh, uh, you know, because there are some realities about this version of the Democratic Party, right? Joe Biden has never experienced kind of mass support on the grassroots level. Uh, uh, when you talk to voters, they have been voting for, they have said they're voting for Joe Biden because of other concerns, but not really because of a fervor for him as an individual candidate. But that's something that Joe Biden has become comfortable with. You know, he, he likes to say this phrase about don't judge me against the, the almighty, you know, judge me against the other options. And I think that's really how he views his political, uh, his, his political uh, kind of cachet is someone the Democrats can rally around in a time in which they needed that. And so Joe Biden is someone who 
who who feels like he has earned the right for that reelection and earned the right to reshape the Democratic Party in his image. This is not just Barack Obama's VP trying to recreate Barack Obama's voter coalition. He has his own voter coalition that might be a little more college educated, that might be a little less dependent on minority voters, but has come out in these last three elections, particularly as a kind of fear of the extremist wing is on the other side. And so that's what I'm saying is giving Democrats that real confidence right now. They think they have a formula that has been proven to work. And so maybe, and so there can be some uh, 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 kind of disconnect between how those insiders are thinking, how the rest of the country is thinking, because you look at things like his disapproval rating, you think you look at things like um, his, you know the amount of Democrats who say they don't want him to run again, and you can think maybe Joe Biden has a really big problem. But what the establishment folks are thinking, and what we found at the DNC, is they're very confident that they will be able to convince people past those concerns, especially because if Trump is on the other side. And as they get closer, and cl further and further away from when we saw them in Philadelphia, I talked to someone last week, they were like, oh, I believe that even more now than I did then because of the indictment and because of how Trump has coalesced his support on the Republican Party. Well, one of the things the Democrats are doing, the DNC is doing, is shaking up the primary calendar. Uh, of course, in 2020, it was the Iowa caucuses, which were sort of a disaster. It took days to figure out who actually won. And then New Hampshire, people have long complained that uh, New Hampshire does not reflect the diversity of the Democratic Party. And so one of the things they're doing is putting South Carolina at the front of the line in 2024. Yeah. And you talked to somebody at the DNC, uh, Leah Dautry, who is an at-large member. She also served as chief of staff to two party chairs, Howard Dean and Terry McAuliffe. And let's hear what she had to, see, uh, had to say about moving uh, and putting South Carolina up top. I don't have a problem with that. He's the president. He's the head of the party. So he gets to make the decisions that are best for the party. And I think his, uh, whether, whether his personal interests played a role, it aligned with our objectives, which is to shake up this system to ensure that the base of your party, who shows up every single cycle for you, have an early say. And to a lot of people, I said that makes a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, Biden did do well in South Carolina, kind of rescued his uh, candidacy in 2020. Um, where does that leave New Hampshire? Because they're very unhappy about having being dethroned in a sense. Is that is there any, you know, any fallout for the party from that? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting question because it's something that has the ability to become really explosive in the next primary, but that really depends on if another challenger kind of emerges to Joe Biden. The DNC made this state order change and Biden specifically chose for South Carolina to be the first state. And part of the things I was asking people at the DNC, including Leah Daltrey, was how much of that was representation driven, the reason he gave, versus how much of that is a president who is trying to insulate himself from the prospect of facing a challenger. And this is all just politics as usual. What Leah's response there was is, yes, it's politics, but his politics aligned with our desires around representation, and that's what matters. And so there you had kind of DNC officials really conceding the idea that the president did put South Carolina first there because it matched with that moderate sense, because it gave him a home turf to start on. And to your point about his moderate bend earlier, I think those things can be connected thoughts. It doesn't surprise me that he has made this pivot more towards the center as he has also put a state 
that is a more moderate state at the front of the primary. This is all feels like a kind of connected move from the Democratic leaders and from Joe Biden. And I think that is kind of what folks um, uh, uh, were, were really saying that he had earned at the DNC. They weren't saying that they agreed with necessarily every decision Joe Biden was making going forward. What they were saying is that because of the midterms performance and because of the legislative wins he was able to get at the toward the end of last year, he was basically given the keys to the party to hmm. say, however, how you want to shape it going forward is something that you have earned. And you've seen him really lean into that, both with, I think, the uh, uh, kind of ideological pivot to the center and with um, moving South Carolina to the front of the primary. Those were moves that were meant to serve Joe Biden's political purposes. And while that's expected from the DNC, I think we should all say that happens without voter input. That's something he says after the midterms and this past a month later, you know, that is something that, um, you know, voters can be fine with, but really was an insider decision uh, uh, that that was made to benefit a president who might need a little bit of a boost. Yeah. Talking with us, Ted Herndon, politics reporter with The New York Times. His podcast is The Run-Up. It premiered its second season yesterday. They're focusing on the leadership of the Democratic and Republican parties. And we'd love to hear from you. What do you think of the leadership of your party? Do you have any idea who they even are? Does it matter to you? What would you like to see them do? What would you like to see your party focus on in terms of issues, candidates? If you're a Republican, who do you like? Uh, what do you dread? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. And let's go to San Francisco. Sandra, you're first. Welcome. Yes. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I am a Democrat and I've been voting here for a long time. I've lived here for 30 years. I would like to see the Democrats really start to talk more about what they're for, not so much what they're against. What what are we for? What do we believe in? And really get better about being on the same page as each other with messaging. When you listen to the Republicans and they're asked a question by a pundit or a reporter, the Republicans never answer the question. They stick to their soundbite and they stick to their message. And the Democrats try and go off on these really great intellectual discussions. And I think there's a place for that. But I think that the mass of the electorate want to are not sophisticated enough to perhaps cut through some of that. And we need to stay on message and stay on soundbite and articulate what the value of things like strong public schools, a good healthcare system, why we need gun control. And also, as an aside, um, I do think that it's crazy that li we're living in a country where there's a refusal to regulate assault rifles mm. and there's a, an acceptance of regulating women's bodies. And that is unacceptable. We need to rise up. We need to be for something. And we need to make sure that our politicians are on message for that. Yeah, thanks very much for that. Instead, uh, you know, we saw those elections this week in uh, Chicago where the sort of progressive, more progressive candidate, a union, uh, teacher's union person, won, defeated a more, you know, conservative Democrat, former Republican or Republican light. Uh, and then in Wisconsin, we saw a, br you know, very brass knuckles uh, campaign for state Supreme Court where a very pro-abortion rights candidate won easily by 11 points in a state that's usually a one or two or three point margin statewide. Um, to, to, to the caller's point, do you think that the messaging of what Democrats stand for, is it getting through? And, and, and if so, how? Yeah, I think the caller uh, uh, points out a really important thing. The, the base among 
Democrats and Republicans are really different. And the way the parties go about kind of creating unity among their bases is really different. And Democrats for a long time, and I think this was particularly true of an Obama coalition that had really had a, a difficulty recreating itself without him on the ballot, Democrats have really struggled with finding an issue that really motivated all different sections of their base. And one of the things that has been a uh, kind of uh, a funny consequence, I don't know if funny is the right word for the Trump era, is that talking about the other side has become that motivating issue that they didn't really have before. And it's actually helped their party to really focus on being better than the alternative rather than what they are more affirmatively for. But what, to the caller's point, that has left a real gap in terms of messaging and in terms of the party being having a kind of universal uh, a policy plank. I think that might change a little bit as issues like abortion uh, um, and, and protecting abortion rights have become universal cries, particularly after the Dobbs decision. You've seen Democrats really coalesce around that. You've seen the party coalesce around uh, a fairness and, and, and protecting democracy as an affirmative vision between all the different uh, between all the different factions. But it gets harder after that. You know, the caller mentioned you know protecting public schools. I remember being in a Democratic primary, uh, recovering a Democratic presidential primary. Where it was very hard to get those candidates to talk about K through 12 and public schooling because there were so many thorny questions about unions and thorny questions about charter schools and the like. They want to find those issues that have the universal party kind of uh, um, salience. And with a democratic base that is diverse, both racially, economically, more so than Republicans, has a lot of opinions across groups, it is often very hard for the party to come up with a singular message uh, that the caller is looking for. All right, Sandra, thanks so much for the call. Again, the number, if you want to weigh in on this conversation about 2024 and the parties and the role that they're playing, especially now behind the scenes, give us a ring at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or you can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Noel tweets, I want younger leadership. Robert writes, may we get some global perspective here. Please compare and contrast the lengths of national election campaigns in the U.S. to other countries. Also address how nearly perpetual campaigning may impact functioning government. And, uh, you know, uh, instead, it's, of course, good for those of us who uh, really love covering politics. But it it is true. There is a kind of... uh, Fatigue. I mean, you almost on some of the cable stations, the day of the inauguration of the, of yeah. the president, whether it's a reelect or a new president, they're already talking about the four years later. I mean, it's it's not healthy, is it? No, it, it's not healthy. And I think it's I think what we try to do on the run up is is based in that reality. We know that both politics is something that is uh, 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 kind of with us at all times. But at the same time, it has to be connected to stakes. You know, I think that we want to think about things like horse race coverage or or, or who's going to win, not just because um, it's a kind of fun game to play, but because it has actual real tangible impacts for people. And I think that's how you have to come at political coverage broadly. And, and certainly sometimes, you know, that gets disconnected, the kind of view of Trump as a spectacle, particularly with the historic scene last week, I was outside that courthouse. And it becomes very hard to maintain kind of perspective in those scenes. He has brought the sideshow of politics onto the main stage. And I understand how that can be a, a kind of a luring storyline, but it's off, it's so important to kind of cut through that noise. And I think 
uh, uh, the folks writing in are correct that, you know, in the, this country, we certainly do have a unique level of perpetual campaigning that lends itself to that kind of speculative coverage that continues on. And I think that's part of the reason why we try to pick a specific focus um, uh, for the run-up this season is because we did not want it to just be asking the question of who's going to win over and over. We thought we should use this time to look at people and themes that inform us uh, uh, of big ideas before we even get to the question of who's going to win or not. And so I, I definitely think that what the what, what folks are hitting on is a fatigue of politics that is true across the board. And I think, you know, as people who cover it, we should be responsive to that. It's on us to put these things in language that feel really urgent to people and feel really and feel really tangible to people, because I have found that that's when they most relate uh, to political uh, journalism. All right, let's go back to the phones. And again, the number is 866-733-6786, talking with Estead Herndon, politics reporter with The New York Times. And let's go to Morgan Hill. And Mary, welcome. You're next. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, go right ahead. Great. Hey, I just wanted to share back to your original question about party affiliation and how I've been in a marriage for 46 years here in the San Francisco Bay Area, born and raised here. Uh, and I've been in this bipartisan relationship where my husband and I look first to the issues and who is going to represent our values and ha- have an effect on maintaining that which we find important. And it's across difference, but it's more, it's less myopic. Yeah. So I've, I've been um, hoping we could continue to look at this partisanship issue differently. Like the earlier caller said, let's talk more about what are, what are the concerns, say, for instance, women's right to choose, um, and where do we stand individually? Do we allow for that? And if so, let us um, find a candidate who is going to uphold that. You see what I mean? And yeah. the issue about climate change, same thing. And my husband and I have come together just for all these years. Yeah, well, that you know, good for you. And the party, both parties have really changed over all those decades. So good for you to hold the marriage together. Uh, and and I, I'm sure that those dinner conversations are interesting. We're going to take a quick break and uh, we're going to come back, continue our conversation about 2024 politics with Estead Herndon from The New York Times. I'm Scott Schaefer, politics editor here at KQED. In Fermina Kim, we'll be right back after a short break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. And this hour, we're talking to New York Times politics reporter, Estet Herndon. 
He's host of the Times podcast, The Run-Up, and its current season is focusing on the political machinations underway, mostly behind closed doors less than a year before the first primaries of the 2024 presidential election. If you'd like to join us, give us a ring at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And um, I, I do want to go back to the phones in a moment, but instead, what, what are you hearing from insiders about Kamala Harris? Uh, she just got back from a fairly, you know, historic trip to Africa, uh, first woman, first uh, woman of color, vice president. Um, what are people saying? There's a lot of folks, even here in California, are a little nervous uh, about her and the effect she might have on a ticket with a presidential candidate who's 81 or however old Joe Biden's going to be next year. Uh, what are you hearing? Yeah, I, I recently went to Munich with the vice president for her uh, trip to the security conference out there. And I asked her this question directly I, I, uh, about um, the focus that Republicans are going to have on her in the next year election. Was she ready for that focus? Because uh, um, it does feel like with the president at an advanced age and with the vice president that some people think is kind of politically vulnerable, that's going to be something Republicans are going to try to seize on. What you hear from folks around uh, of the vice president is that they feel like they have found their issues, that they she has become more comfortable in the role. And that things like the trip recently uh, uh, to Africa were, are a part of that. Um, you also hear that there is real confidence from the White House that they believe that like her and Joe Biden have a, a have a good relationship and that that relationship will serve them well uh, on the trail. But I covered, you know, uh, Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. And, at, and that campaign was really um, that really campaign was up and down for one that she was some, she was someone who really struggled with articulating her fullness of her vision while on the trail in those kind of off the cuff situations. And I think that's what's going to be uh, what folks are looking at for this summer. Joe Biden is going to want her to travel the country, is going to want her to be a, a kind of strong force uh, for re-election as he announces. And there's going to be a real onus on her to be the administration's, uh, I would say, pseudo attack dog uh, on the trail. That's a role that she has been comfortable in previously, but I think the stakes are going to be a lot higher here. And especially after a first couple years that were not going that well, uh, uh, if they say, you know, if the if the sea legs are there, as you know, those close to the vice president and those who support her like to say, that's going to have to be translated in a presidential race where Republicans are going to be putting a lot of pressure on her as a way uh, uh, as a way to needle Joe Biden. You know, as somebody who's covered Kamala Harris since she was running for district attorney here in San Francisco, it's pretty clear she she I think is most compelling uh, and most relatable when she's speaking off off the cuff or you know from the heart. You know, might be a better way to say. It. And she did a little bit of that on this trip to Africa. Is that something that both she and the administration and you know the campaign officials are going to be comfortable with having her do? I think so, and I think there's an increasing recognition of what you said is that's the place where she's best suited. And, and, and so I think that that is the idea of kind of releasing someone to their strengths. Uh, um, and that has often been for her um, expressing kind of empathetic justice and expressing a, a, a view that I think is based in that prosecutor role uh, of where she has she has not only been someone who is tough, but someone who has um, you know made the kind of pitch for smart on crime, a way that, you know, a place where Democrats have be, have really embraced nationally. And so I think there is going to be uh, um, increased desire for her to do that kind of speaking from the heart. And I think a, a, another place where she, we saw that recently 
was um, in the um, in the uh, the funeral of the young man who passed in Memphis, where she spoke, and that was another place where she was doing that kind of, of empathetic speaking from the heart, and it was received really well. And so I do think you're going to see a little bit more of that because this is an administration that knows that she has to be released to her strengths for uh, uh, for Democrats to really get the fullness of the political advantage they thought they were going to get when they were adding her to the ticket. You know, it's going to be pressure though, because there are a lot of Democrats who are unsure that she's kind of ready to lead the party um, if it were to come to that. And so it's kind of a underneath the surface storyline that is definitely playing a role in 2024, uh, um, but it could kind of be solved if she steps up in that kind of campaign role, which the White House certainly wants her to do. All right, let's go to the phones again. And it's uh, Susie in San Francisco. You're up next. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Um, you know, I think there's a real need for younger Democratic presidential candidates. Um, I think that's a huge deal for the for um, the party. Um, I'm hoping in the in distant future for Katie, Katie Porter. But for now, I, I was wondering what your guest thinks of Andy Bashir, who's the Democrat Democratic governor of Kentucky as a potential presidential candidate. I find him very impressive. Yeah, uh, good question. A, a Democrat in a very Republican state. Yeah. Instead, and you've got other people like uh, you know, like Roy Cooper in North Carolina. Some governors, uh, you know, uh, Gretchen Whitmer in in Michigan. Who 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 do you see out there? And like, what do you think of Andy Bashir to the caller's question? I think to your point, governors are really where you've seen the Democrats kind of create an upcoming class of people who are looking ahead and, and maybe looking to the White House. I would not only include Bashir and, and Cooper as people who won in, in tough Democratic districts, but also uh, uh, Democrats who have won in blue states who have really made a name for themselves that way. Not only you all's governor out there and Gavin Newsom, I'm thinking of J.B. Pritzker in Illinois. These were all people who were kind of um, who were kind of looking ahead to see just how how would the party deal with Biden in 2024. But as the party has coalesced around Biden, that discussion has kind of been punted for another presidential cycle. But I think the caller is right to look at those type of candidates as the Democrats who are rising up, because more so than the Senate uh, or, or more so than kind of other uh, House races, I think you have an increasing group of Democrats who are, are using the governor's office uh, in, in, in different ways. And, um, and more so than that, you have a Democratic electorate who is very concerned with electability to being able to win, being able to defeat Trump. That's certainly how Biden uh, was able to leapfrog those other candidates uh, um, in the 2020 primary. And that's something that governors have a unique claim to. Someone like Bashir, someone like Cooper can say that they were able to win over Republican voters in those states. And I think that's an argument that's going to be having taken seriously uh, um, when we look forward because that's where a lot of the base of Democrats are, you know, and that Obama era was so much about values. It was so much about kind of reflecting your political priorities. But the shock of 2016 really changed that. And at the core of a lot of Democratic voters right now are certainly values, but also can this person win? And uh, uh, that's something that those governors are really going to be able to lean into whenever that time comes. All right, Susie, thanks so much for the call. Uh, I've got some listener comments as well here. Uh, Deanne writes, I'd love it if both parties and their candidates would prioritize the real world needs, safety and economic health of citizens, as well as the health of the planet. I feel as though people and the environment regularly lose out to corporate and wealthy interests that have lobbying power. And yes, younger leadership, that is really a theme 
uh, that we're yeah. hearing a lot. Um, and uh, it'll have to probably wait for another day. I mean, you know, people don't really talk about Donald Trump's age, but he's also, what what is he uh, said, about 75, 76, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, uh, I was just at CPAC where Nikki Haley was uh, proposing an age test over 75 <laughs> that would include certainly <laughs> Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But I mean, I think this theme has come up oh, for a lot of people. A lot of the reasons we talk to people about their distaste with the parties is it feels out of touch, not just because of political priorities or ideology or gone too left or too right, but just because these folks are older and are not kind of keeping up with the majority of the issues that are affecting kind of under 40, under 45 Americans. You saw a huge split in the Democratic primary between over 45 and under 45. Those generational questions are just as important as the uh, as the ideological ones. All right. Let's go back to the phones now. And Bill in San Francisco, you're up. Hi, thanks. This has been a fascinating discussion about politics, but I'm wondering whether the constituency cares about administrative competency. So we create these programs that come out of politics, but then the delivery of the program that the politics are supposed to create, like I think of housing in San Francisco, where we want to build housing, but we have eight political priorities that go into a unit of housing so that we're trying to satisfy everyone, but then we don't build the housing unit because it's too expensive. Or the subways in New York or now in this chip bill, we put in so many priorities of Democratic parties in particular, but then it gets in the way of actually delivering the product or the service that the politics is supposed to create. And I'm wondering when, whether the, the constituency is beginning to question the competency of the party, in addition to the politics of the party, that's a great question, Asted. Uh, you know, the the Democrats, with Republican help, uh, passed that enormous infrastructure bill, which the president and Pete Buttigieg and others have been out uh, around the country touting, um, which is a kind of competence. Of course, they have to build the stuff now. But uh, you know, what what do you think? I mean, is that the kind of thing that you know most that really pushes voters one way or the other? I my guess is maybe at the local level, like Bill was suggesting, yeah. like you know, you see, like okay, the mayor's in charge of this. That and the other things, but the president is a little, you know, more more of a thirty thousand foot view. Hundred percent. I was going to make that same point. I definitely think that that is becoming an increasing priority on the local level. I was just following that Chicago mayor's race and beyond, even just left or right between those two candidates. It was also an argument about competence and an argument about who uh, uh, and an argument about who is actually representing the needs of voters in a constituency delivering and delivering for constituents level. But in the presidential race, it is often about uh, 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 it is often about organizing the party on higher principles. It's often about those kind of lofty ideals. And, and, and that really is what often drives those races. I remember covering Elizabeth Warren's campaign and, and, and she actually had such a specific vision about how the administrative state should work under a presidency. And I remember asking her, uh, how do you get voters to make this their priority? Uh, I, you know, like, how do you get people to, to frankly, vote on, on, on administration and, and kind of regulatory policy focused things? And, and that was a challenge she could never really square. Um, and so, you know, policy is often in presidential races used as a signal to your values, but fewer people are actually voting on the substance 
of those policies. And I don't think, you know, I'm not, I'm saying that as a reality, not necessarily a good reality, but just a true one about how the way we do presidential races. And so certainly for 2024, it is a organizing principle for the party's policies, but the specific questions of how that play out, I'm thinking about crime and policing, for example, a lot more of those, as I don't have to tell San Francisco and the Bay Area, certainly play out on a local level uh, rather than uh, from the top down. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that recently in a recall of a district attorney and uh, just, uh, you know, some high profile crimes that won this week, the stabbing of, uh, of somebody who is well-known in the tech community. We're talking to New York Times politics reporter, Ested Herndon. He's host of the Times podcast, The Run-Up. Its current season is focusing on the political machinations underway, mostly behind closed doors, uh, as we lead up to the 2024 presidential election. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. And let's go back to the phones now. And we're going to go down to Santa Clara now. And Joseph, welcome. Yes, well, first of all, thank you for taking my call. I think the winning message for Democrats, and I'm a Democrat, I, I think, uh, you know, three things. One would be uh, Social Security. I think uh, in the State of the Union, uh, Biden really put the Republicans on the defensive. And uh, I think that that's a winning message, primarily because obviously there's a lot of Republicans uh, that are on Social Security as well. Uh, and I think that ads should be run in. I don't know, a more conservative states uh, showing the um, showing the senator from Wisconsin talking about that he felt like the Social Security was a Ponzi scheme. Um, and uh, also the leader, the Republican leader, has also said uh, in the Senate has said that, uh, you know, you want to cut Social Security and privatize Social Security and those types of things. So mm. I think that Social Security is certainly a winning message. Uh, secondly, I think that we saw what happened in the 2022 elections with abortions. I think that, uh, you know, it should be loud and clear that uh, women should have the choice as far as, yeah. you know, their bodies. Um, and thirdly, uh, you know, the issue around uh, gun control right now. So I think that everything else as far as, you know, health and public schools and et cetera, I think should come behind those messages. Yeah. Thanks very much for your thoughts on that. And instead, you know, one problem it seems to me Republicans have is that the things that they, the, the policy positions that they espouse are not that popular. I mean, you look at things like guns, gun control, abortion, uh, even, you know, tri trimming entitlements. I mean, like as the caller said, I mean, those are not, they're on the wrong side of a lot of those issues, aren't they? hundred percent. And I think that that has made a greater importance to the kind of structural political questions because Republicans in a lot of states are basically functioning as a minority in power. I think about Wisconsin, for example, a state that obviously just backed that Supreme Court uh, justice, the liberal by 11 points. That is a state that also now uh, in, in that same election day has a supermajority in its state legislature where Democrats have basically no say of the laws that are coming out of the House and Senate there because of meticulously drawn gerrymandered maps that came in the Scott Walker administration. And so you have such an asymmetric balance between a lot of the halls of power in, in, in politics right now because uh, I think the kind of normal tenets of democracy have been really shifted. Uh, uh, and, and so for a lot of Republicans, they have stopped trying to make the majority of the country agree with their argument. Uh, what they have done is create ways that they can impose 
that view on the majority of voters, whether they like it or not. And gerrymandering specifically, and specifically at the state legislature level, has really allowed for that, uh, uh, particularly in states like Wisconsin, Ohio. I was just thinking about that with Tennessee and what we just saw there. Part of what's able, what they're able to do there is because they've really broken up Nashville as a, as a place that has representation, the only kind of democratic place. And they can now uh, 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 remove those members as we saw this week. And so to the point about uh, uh, with what, what they have done, to the point about what Republicans have done, done by not having the majority of Americans support their policies, they have focused on political structures where you don't need that. And so the courts and state legislature have created increased importance uh, uh, in the reality that they're not where the most of where the public is. Yeah, that's one, one reason, of course, that race in Wisconsin was so important. Here's a tweet from Sergio who says, we need someone qualified for the job, not the most popular. I'm on Team Purple. When it comes to law enforcement, DeSantis is my choice. When it comes to labor work, it's Bernie Sanders. We haven't talked much about Ron DeSantis somehow, <laughs> Stead Herndon. Uh, what do you make of his putting all of it, a lot of chips on this woke politics thing. I mean, do, do people even know what that means? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I think it goes back to your point about kind of where Republicans are versus the rest of the country. You know, Ron DeSantis has made a kind of uh, 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 clear bet that you cannot be the Republican nominee and be anti-Trump. And so the reaction has been to lean in to that sort of anti-woke language as a way to grow your popularity among the Trump grassroots, to get support from Fox News hosts, to find friendly segments on Tucker Carlson. And this really worked for him in the short term in terms of being able to build name recognition as a Trump challenger. But it's also created a lot of problems for him. I'm thinking about his position on Ukraine and how not calling that a uh, a strategic interest has really put him on the opposite side of the majority of even Republicans. Yeah, he's really, uh, really sort of uh, drawing a lot of questions now about whether he's really up to the task for running. We are out of time. Uh, we could talk, I'm sure, for another hour, but uh, we've been talking to Estet Herndon, politics reporter with the New York Times. He's the host of the podcast, The Run Up, which premiered its second season yesterday. Check it out. Thanks so much, Estet. Appreciate your joining us. Thank you. This Hour of Forum is produced by Carolyn Smith, Grace Wan, and Lakshmi Sarah. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer, and Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Brendan Willard, Jim Bennett, and Christopher Beal. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven lindsay and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! 
Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.